This episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by Dunlop Bass Strings. Dunlop Bass Strings are made in California and designed by the players at Dunlop to sound and feel the way a string should. With deep lows, strong fundamental punchy mids, and articulate highs. Dunlop Bass Strings offer a complete line with standard nickel and stainless round wounds, flat wounds, and super brights. They're also available in short, medium, and long scales. So go to jimdunlop.com and check out Dunlop Bass Strings. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. The Bass Freaks podcast is a place to gain some insight and inspiration as well as learn a little something about some truly amazing bass players. I'm your host, Josh Paul, and today's guest is Gary Willis. Gary is a phenomenal fretless bassist and composer known foremost as the co-founder of the jazz fusion band Tribal Tech. Aside from his work in Tribal Tech, he's worked with numerous other incredible musicians, including Wayne Shorter, Dennis Chambers, Alan Holdsworth. He has released several solo projects, including Retro, Actual Fiction, No Sweat, and Bent. His latest solo CD, Larger Than Life, was released in 2015. Willis is also the author of four books for bass guitar, uh, Fingerboard Harmony for Bass, The Gary Willis Collection, Ultimate Ear Training for Guitar and Bass, and 101 Bass Tips, all published by Hal Leonard. All right, Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thanks how you doing? Excellent, excellent. So, uh, Gary, tell me, how did you come to the bass guitar? Wow, um, we're jumping right in. Yeah, um, my 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 parents um, played music in the church and gospel music, and they needed a bass player. And I was thirteen. Um, we had a guitar around the house, uh, but I just kind of like screwed around on it. Didn't really didn't get that far on it. But I, I got a on my 13th birthday i got a bass on a thursday and i was in church sitting by my dad on a sunday the next sunday playing amazing so that in. easy huh well <laughs> you know i i i could you know kind of come in and out when i knew what i was doing you know so i always felt protected it was a safe environment you know right do you remember what kind of bass it was oh yeah for sure it was a vox panther bass a short scale Ooh, flat yeah. ones on it wow i couldn't tell you. I okay. honestly couldn't. Probably, yeah. Right. I didn't know. I didn't know you were supposed to change strings until like my third year in college. So <laughs> when I broke one, I took it back to the store. I said, "Hey, the bass broke." You know. <laughs> I got it. Yeah, I'm. I'm fairly certain that most people can't afford to change them anyway around yeah, that age. Yeah, so. I was. I was pretty ignorant. So. <laughs> yeah. So you. So you did that gig in church. Where did you go from there? Was there a particular bass player that you saw that just wowed you and you thought um, to yourself, I want to do this? Um, no, um, I I'd only was unexposed, only exposed to like country music and my parents' music, um, gospel and what was on the radio. Okay. And um, that kind of like got too easy, got kind of boring. So I got a guitar on my 15th birthday. So for like the next seven years, I studied guitar but continued to play bass and whatever bands needed me, you know? So, so I did all my kind of most of my, uh, well, yeah, a lot of basic harmonic study I did on a guitar. Okay. You know, while playing bass. So, um, and then I, I went to North Texas. I finally got up the courage to go to North Texas state. I went to like three different other colleges, um, because I was like really intimidated by reading. I couldn't read worth shit. And, um, 
And so I, one of the guitar teachers I had my third year in college went up to North Texas to start teaching there. And I thought, okay, well, if he's going to be up there, I can go up there and study. And so I went the first year and, and auditioned for the lab band. And there were like 11 lab bands, you know, and that's like double rhythm section. Um, and so I made the worst lab band, 11 o'clock. <laughs> they start at one o'clock, which is the best top notch, you know, killing reading and playing. And I made the worst on guitar. And then uh, the next summer, um, the bank wouldn't extend the loan, $500, um, so that I could, you know, continue college. So I had I had a Les Paul and I had a Precision at that point. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to sell the Les Paul. And, uh, you know, I think one thing that drove my choice was uh, I'd play in the same bands, you know, with um, bass and guitar. And no matter how well I played guitar, if the rhythm section wasn't happening, the music wasn't happening. And in the same band, if I played bass, then the rhythm section, you know, I felt more confident about my instincts. You know? Okay. So it was somewhere in there. You, just yeah. natural. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like, okay, this is what I should be doing. Yeah. When did you be, uh, decide to become a, a pro musician? That was never a choice. Um, I, I just always tried to um, put myself in situations where I could learn. You know, um, of course, like after dropping out of college, I didn't get a degree because um, at North Texas State, they didn't have electric bass. You can, couldn't study bass. So, okay. <laughs> so I, I, I studied classical, which I really sucked at. Um, but that allowed me to to take all the uh, the small groups and ensembles, you know. So I got to jam and play with you know good and better musicians than me. Um, but I, I I didn't see myself like another five and a half, two and a half years, five semesters, two and a half years of classical. So um, I got out of there. <laughs> and uh, I there was a, a sixty five jazz bass in a pawn shop that I I. Um, I put it on layaway and I took this gig in, in a top 40 band. I kept paying on it, paying on it. And like midway through the summer, maybe in August, um, we were on a tour and I had it uh, shipped to me in Anchorage, Alaska. We were up there playing six nights a week or whatever it was, five sets a night. Wow. <laughs> and there was, this is before FedEx or, or um, UPS or anything. So it, 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 I put it on a Greyhound bus. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only way to get it there you know and it arrived safe and sound it it did it did yeah so uh, once it got there um uh there was nobody that could tell me how to make it fretless um but i was pretty good with tools and shit so i i uh i tested some different epoxies and then lacquers and stuff like that with a with a nickel you know with a u.s nickel and mm -hmm. There was one called DevCon that I've, I've used ever since, um, or I used like you know, for years and years and years. Um, and so I took out the frets and I stuck um, HO, guy, HO gauge two by fours from the model train shop uh -huh. in the slots, in the in the fret slots, and then covered it up and, and finished it. And I kind of never looked back. Like I played that constantly on the top 40 gig and tracked my hand up and down the neck, you know, for years after that. So that is awesome. Just jumped in. If I tried to do that, uh, 
it wouldn't turn out very good. <laughs> that's that's putting it politely. Well, it was music I knew, you know, so I wasn't having to be creative. I was just having to be, you know, trying to learn how to be accurate, you know. Yeah. Awesome. Um, what drove you to play um, improvisational stuff? Well, um, I, one thing that was that, um, you know, listening to to pop music and, you know, R&B and whatever was on the radio, I was drawn to um, instrumental cuts. They seemed more abstract. And, oh, okay. and I was always into abstract art, and uh, it seemed easier to identify with the instrumental music uh, because it wasn't those specific lyrics of happening to that person saying that thing, you know? It was just more of a world you could, like, you know, get into. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I just like started gravitating towards um, uh, instrumental cuts, like um, the first. Um, let's see, one I remember was um, from this band called War. Yeah. Um, a tune called City Country City. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, like things like that got me into like the instrumental side of things, you know. And then I found in in looking for that, I I, I heard uh, the Jazz Crusaders. Mm. Um, and I found them in the record bin and then they were in the jazz section. So I just started looking around there and, you know, kind of reversed my way through jazz history, you know, back to miles and stuff. And then, you know, made my way up through bitches brew and weather report and things like that over the next, you know, several years. But, but the, yeah, like the abstract nature of, of improvisational music was, you know, it's always been my thing. Yeah. So drooming in. As far as performing it and experiencing those moments of of beauty, um, improv, improvising. Mm-hmm. When did you when did you notice that this was for me? You know, because I know you do quite a bit of it. Yeah, I mean that's that's. Um, I learned how to jam before I ever learned anything about the names of the notes or theory or anything. You know, so music just worked if you. If you just let stuff happen, you know. So, uh, my second year, uh, second semester in college, I was at this um, uh, university, and they had, off campus they had this little building that the music department had, and it was their synth room, you know. And they had a bukla, and he was like one of the early pioneers of synthesizers. And okay. this thing was like you know this huge wall of things you could plug in and out, and the keyboard was actually like this touch sensitive thing you know it wasn't an uh black and white keyboard it was an electronic thing that sensed when you touched it you know and so there was uh, the ability to record things as well so um we would just book that room on weekends and bring everything that we owned guitars basses um and pots and pans you know um and you know we would just jam and so it, music immediately for me was just jamming you know and like you know we would do like <laughs> we would brainstorm and say okay so for this for the next piece you know i'm i think you know somebody was in control of the light switch so we'll jam but then when they turn off the lights we'll stop you know <laughs> <laughs> and when we stopped somebody was pouring water into a glass and you could hear that you know oh wow yeah. and then that's when i that's when i discovered the sound of um a hair dryer through a pickup oh it's it's wicked. <laughs> I gotta try that. I'll show you something. Um, let's see. 
Can you turn up just a little bit? Yeah, well, you you don't you want go. me to turn up once I get this thing going. <laughs> I like it loud. This is a Dremel. Wow. So anyway, so if you're going to do this, a variable speed drill works best. Okay. Okay. I, I remember doing a um, a little clinic tour with Simon Phillips one time, um, and and he he had um, a variable speed drill because he changed heads a lot, mm-hmm. and he had the the drum key on his on his drill bit. And so I just picked it up one time in a sound check and like put it near my pickups, you know, and was I could play pitches, you know, because it was variable speed. You know? uh-huh. So so we came up with this tune <laughs> where I played uh, the melody, uh-huh. you know, on variable speed drill in front of a pickup, just like that. <laughs> oh, wow. Is it recorded? <laughs> I don't know, man. It was back in the way early 90s. I don't, I don't know. If anybody I, would, did. I would love to hear that. That is pretty, awesome. Pretty out so there. You- you're not afraid to experiment. So, man, and it was like just, you know, notes, whatever. If it sounds like notes, it's not probably very abstract, you know. Right. So uh, I know you've, you've spent recent years um, as an educator. What drew you to teaching? I think I was inspired, like, maybe in the sixth grade, I had, like, a really good teacher, you know. And it, it occurred to me, like, man, I'd, I'd maybe want to teach someday or something. Um, but... Um, I was just always into sharing, you know, when I would um, when I, when I, be in contact with musicians, you know, we jam, we talk about stuff. And and I think my journey of, you know, because I never had a bass teacher, you know, I studied guitar, but not bass. And so not having a bass teacher, like gives me like a maybe a, a clearer path or a more direct, you know, line into like solving problems with students, you know. Mm. So um so I don't look down on teaching. You know, a lot of people think it's like something you do if you can't do anything else. Um, um, I, I, I have a lot of respect for it. And, you know, I've encountered students who have experienced um, really great players who can't teach. <laughs> they can't, you know, communicate what they're doing. You know? Right. So I, that's um, me. That's I, I'm guilty. <laughs> so, so, um, so I always, you know, um, enjoyed that light bulb coming on you know in a student's you know head you know so that's kind of kept me um it became like a um a choice um instead of it allowed me to not play gigs where the music was not really that important to me you know so instead of taking every gig that came across you know um my path you know i i could be more selective you know, and, and just choose things that I identified with, you know. Awesome. What do you see coming from the next generation of young players? Um, I'd like to see a lot more technology. Um, How so? Um, well, um, there's a possibilities with, um, with um, Ableton and with triggering and with sampling and effects and, and all these things. And there of course you have you have your journey as a musician you have to learn how to play on the instrument but there's all these other elements that go into how people experience music that a lot of that it's not being jumped on yet you know um as far as like just being self-contained and and coming up with amazing video and 
and cool interfaces and ways to, you know, produce music. Um, I'm not, I'm not seeing that as much as I'm just seeing people, you know, being YouTube artists. Right. You know? Okay. Um, YouTube artists or NAMM show artists, you know? <laughs> Got it. Got it. So, so taking it, taking it to a bit more, taking it to the next level. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I, I, like I had a trio here in Barcelona and until the sax player decided to be a, like a, a triathlete, <laughs> we, um, we were a trio. We used Ableton live and I was the VJ while I was playing bass. So I had two computers. Uh, we were playing along with Ableton and I had the melodies synchronized with MIDI and then I had solo sections that were would develop as we developed, you know, as a trio underneath solos. And I was looping and I was doing like guitar parts, synth parts and, you know, looping the bass parts and launching all these videos. And we were, you know, it was pretty wild. Um, the thing is, we did like this was like right before the financial meltdown, like in 2008, 2009. And so we played all our coolest gigs uh, before um, the financial crisis. <laughs> OK. And before we had a record out. Oh, wow. You know? So so um, by the time all that happened, the places that we could play kind of dried up. Plus, the sax player decided to be a triathlete. So, um, well, God bless him. <laughs> so you know i mean those kind of like um like the, to me like the one of the boring visual boring boringest visual things is like seeing a bunch of guys you know people on stage playing jazz you know they're just like standing there and they've got this huge stage and huge you know visual thing and they don't take advantage of it you know mm. So, you know, isn't our writer to have a projector and screen and all that stuff, you know? Well, it seems like you're sort of on the cutting edge of a lot of that technology that's being used still now. I'm trying to um, be. I'm trying to get my students pointing in that direction, you know? What, uh, how did you get into all that and what interested you into that? Um, Excuse me. Well, um, well, one was a practical thing. Um, we didn't really have a keyboard player in mind, and the the sax player at that time, um, he ha he could get us gigs, but all the gigs he had done previously were like with five a five piece, and okay. he was interested in making money, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And I wasn't really interested in playing a jazz trio, you know. I wanted to do something you know funky and futuristic, so I said, okay. Let at first we tried it. I tried it with programming, you know, some of the songs we were doing into into logic uh -huh. and logic would loop but then when you went out of the loop it actually wouldn't go out of the loop when you told it to you know it would hang on to the previous loop until a bar or two later so so obviously ableton live was the solution to that and that was that that gave us like more dimension and from there i started you know working on interfaces for like getting these buttons into my base so i could control patch changes and looping and and things like that so Ooh, that is awesome so um so yeah that that's the the path we took you know oh yeah. uh, what do you need in deciding which gigs you want to do or to do um well like even before covid i was like stopped i stopped being enamored of uh travel you know um because i'm old enough like most people traveling these days don't remember what it's like what it was like you know 20 30 years ago you know when uh, in tribal tech we would show up at the united airlines counter with four people 
with 20 flight cases, mm. you know, speaker cabinets, guitar cabinets, amps, you know, keyboards, you know, and, and sometimes they wouldn't charge us. Oh, really? I'm not shitting you. What? <laughs> you know? So, Crazy. I mean, it's so different, you know, these mm. days. They're trying to nickel and dime you for a Coke, you know? And back then, it's like, we could take 20, you know, flight cases to Europe, you know? So okay. it's, it's really dehumanizing, you know? And, and basically, if you're a musician on the road, you are, except for the hour or two you get to play, you're like a transportation company, <laughs> you know, you're just loading, unloading, checking into hotels, checking out, making lobby call, um, taxis, trains, planes, you know, the big, you know, the big question of the day is like, okay, do we go eat before sound check or do you just take sound check now and eat later? Or do we go back to the hotel after sound check or no, we don't get to like, you know, those are those are like exciting things when you're getting to play if you haven't done it before and you're young, you know. And those things don't matter, but but the the kind of music I play doesn't allow for the a decent lifestyle because I play fusion, you know, mm -hmm. and and it's it's kind of low on the scale of accommodations, you know, when it comes to travel and and <laughs> lifestyle, you know. Understood. So, you know, it's like, uh, as far as gigs to choose, I'm not, I'm choosing not to um, participate in that. Um, and occasionally I'll play uh, tracks for some people, you know, mm -hmm. if I, if I feel curious about the music, if I'm interested in it, you know, uh, but I'll, I will be upfront with people when I tell them, you know, I, I like, you got the wrong guy, you know. <laughs> you got know, it. So. Uh, what drew you to Fretless and uh, how did you develop your unique voice on the instrument when i had a precision i was at north texas state and i was playing in all, all these jazz bands and um and i was trying to get the bass to function like an upright okay um and it everything i tried didn't work um at one point <laughs> um i thought well okay there's like kind of a buzz that i heard sometimes on upright basses you know so um i i tightened the truss rod and made my neck like really straight and every note that I played was like buzzing, fretting out. <laughs> I took it to rehearsal and these people were giving me these looks like, what the hell? <laughs> so, so my initial desire, um, as soon as I got out of North Texas State, was to put that 65 Jazz on layaway and turn it into a fretless, you know? And um, like when I first heard Jocko, I didn't really know enough, I didn't understand enough about music to be like inspired by it. It was like, okay, that's cool. I'm going to go back to do my thing. But um, maybe like a year, year and a half later, I was in a band and we were playing like four tunes off of Heavy Weather. You know, so um, so the, the thing about fretless is that something happens to the note after you play the attack. You know the vibrato, the swell, the the musicality of it, um, mm -hmm. and it's it's to me way more personal than the, a fretted, you know, because once you play a fretted note, it's starting to decay, you know, right, um, okay. and there's not much nuance to it, you know. So, so, um, so yeah, just personal expression. I started finding you know a lot more personal expression in fretless, and and just kept that as my priority every time I could. Yeah. What was the path to find that sort of unique 
voice? Well, um, I, I learned, I taught myself uh, as much as I could about bass design, you know, um, I'm, I'm pretty handy with tools. I grew up, um, my dad was a part-time gunsmith. Oh, wow. So I grew up with a shop full of tools. So I was not afraid to take a toy apart, you know, and put it <laughs> back together. Same thing with basses, you know, I kind of understood, okay, so this string vibrates, there's a magnet, this is coil around it. Okay, it's electronics, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, so I, one of the first things I started doing was building my own pickups. Oh, wow. You know, I would go and buy like um, stud finders, the magnetic stud finders, uh -huh. you know, and those are like long Alnico pickups that, I mean, magnets that you find in a jazz bass. So I bought like eight of those, you know. And then uh, while I was in L.A., once I moved to L.A., I, I found a source for the 042 original, like um, at least the size of the coil that w that went on the fenders. And so I just like got some epoxy, drilled some holes, stuck some magnets on some PC board and stuck it on a drill and just, you know, filled that sucker up with, you know, 042 gauge wire and built my own pickups. You know? How old were you? I was, you know, 23, something like that. Okay. And so I uh, pick up design, base design. I started like, um, there was a wood shop where you could buy wood and they would cut out, you know, slabs of stuff. So I, I traced the design of a jazz base and took them uh, like the, the outline of it on a piece of paper. I said, I want this. I think I thought at the time, okay, I'll get a big heavy piece of maple and I have a big rock solid tone. You know, and they cut it out for me. And then in my kitchen, <laughs> I got a router, you know, and there was like sawdust flying everywhere. And I routed out, you know, for a base, you know, because I had a neck. I had a Fred neck. And on the on the heavy maple, which looked great, um, it didn't, didn't matter which pickup I put or where I cut the hole for the pickups. It didn't have a fat sound. And so um, I, you know, I, I was like looking for another neck and I got on the phone with Warmoth. Mm -hmm. heard of that yeah and yeah. so um they hipped me to the fact that the early fenders were made of swamp ash or alder you know the alder was the ones that was painted and that was light wood it's pretty inconsistently light um ash um can be a baseball bat it can be heavy or it can be light you have to be more select with it so the next body that i had them cut out was alder and that one it didn't matter which pickups i used or where i put it it was fat sounding mm. You know, so that got me hip to the properties of the density of wood, you know, and its resonant frequencies and resonant properties, you know, so those applied to my, you know, choices when it came, you know, I got the opportunity to, to you know, get my own base going with Ibanez. So I may let's so, talk about that a little bit. The uh, you, your signature. Yeah. Um, so. um what happened was I had like a so so called I mean like I had an endorsement with with Mike Tobias, and he, he just gave me cost you know for instruments, um, and which is great, very generous of him. Um, at the time, he was only doing neck through instruments, mm -hmm. and I wanted like a really light body. I knew that, and um, and he would only do neck through, which puts the heavy piece of maple and laminate all the way through the body and makes it the resonant frequency higher and is not so fat sounding. So I had him put like the lightest pieces of maple heat. Cause that's all he used was maple on the sides of the neck through. And then, um, it was really fortunate that he, he put me in touch with Bartolini and 
from that connection, I was able to work with Bartolini on a on a jazz bass pickup that you know, um no, not not at that point. At that point it was just the soap bar pickup. Mike's pickups were too close to the bridge. <laughs> and so um Bartolini suggested a, a hum canceller, which is only one coil with two uh no, uh, one set of magnets and one magnet and two coils, which canceled hum, but it moved the the sensing further away from the bridge. And so that that helped the sound that I was going for. Um and then um throughout this whole time I was um I was building ramps for people. You know, the the thing that goes under the strings. Yeah. And um um every six months when I was teaching at BIT or GIT in Hollywood, um there would be like a new crop of students and they would go, Oh, I want one of those, you know. So I'd build a ramp and one student had an agonist. It was a five string, it was 24 frets. Um, it was a light body, it was a bolt on. It was like, man, this is cool. So at that time I was with Tobias. Um, I, I had trouble tech with Scott and he was with Abenez and he said, you know, talk to Abenez. And, and um, so one day, um, you know, after talking to him, a couple of guys from the custom shop came over with like slide rules and, you know, calipers and did all this measuring and shit. And, uh, and they took all these measurements and they they made a base for me so so for the next like seven years this is like 91 something like that 92 uh, for the next seven years i endorsed to um ibanez in that i was playing their instrument but they didn't sell it all right they didn't didn't manufacture it you know um to make it look like one of their bases um it had the ramp on it but also had a front pickup the front pickup was just plastic it's like there was no electronics in it at all. It just uh, looked like it was their angle, you know, angled front pickup and a straight back pickup, but it looked like their product, you know. Right. And then finally, in 97, they came to me and said, okay, yeah, we're going to do signature bases. That was the first time they'd, they'd ever done any. And so um, so I was all excited, but then um, they had never done signature bases before, so that was a new process for them. So, um, so yeah they uh they we were on the road at one point they met me in amsterdam or something and okay they said um here's your base body you know it's going to be this sound gear design um and i said okay please give me more cutaway because i couldn't reach the 24th fret with my little finger so they did that and my base at that time was a, a fretless that i made fretless you know i did the 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 epoxy job on it and uh they said um <coughs> excuse me um uh you're gonna have to go with ebony because they couldn't afford the the man hours you know the, the extra price of you know refinishing a, a fretless neck so i made some calls i call I talked to some people and and was reassured that ebony was going to hold out you know and it always did it lasted plenty long um and um Let's see, I, I was really lucky because of the, you know, connection with Bartolini that um, throughout its lifetime, you know, we went through like 40 prototypes of the pickup. Oh, wow. It's, it's a custom pickup. It's it's radius, the top of its radius with the ramp. And within the pickup, the height of each, you know, coil or at least, yeah, the height and the angle of each coil is controlled so that, you know, the string to string volume is exactly what I want. So I was really lucky to have that. Um, and so, so that's, that's how the base, you know, has, has turned out. They've refined it. They've made some adjustments over the years. We've improved it, but I've been really lucky. It's been more than 20 years now. 
That's killer. What about amps and effects? Um, you use any effects or anything? Oh, fuck. <laughs> that's a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> um, you know, since about um, since about two thousand and one or something, um, um, I've been with Aguilar, and they've been amazing. It's been like killer, like um, because uh, Daryl knows, um, and he kind of helped recruit me to um, at the time uh, back when I met him uh, to Eden. So oh, I was yeah. Eden for a while, and then when I went to Aguilar, it was like just you know, no question, like 3D sound, it was killing. Um, so that's been the go-to amp, you know, since then. And I was lucky. Um, at one point, they were designing like this, this like, small 12. Uh, it's called the GS112. Mm -hmm. And um, and they actually, they took my advice. Um, they had a design ready to go, and it was ported on the top and ported on the bottom. And like, here's another thing, as far as chasing the sound thing, um, I used to build my own cabinets. <laughs> you know, so I understood like porting. Of course you did. I, of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they they said, you know, come check out this cabinet we're you know going to release, and it was ported on the top and ported on the bottom because it, and because of that porting, it was a bigger cabinet than you would expect for a twelve. You know, it's taller, and it had this extra wood for the. It had like you know double walls because of the ports were these long, you know, side to side ports. We were walking out of their testing room, and they had this little, this little swell over there that did that had just like a single hole in the front of it. And I said, "What does that thing sound like?" You know, and we plugged it in, and I tested it, and said, the thing sounded great. You know, and I just told him, "Look, you know, if people are going to be more impressed by the sound coming out of this smaller cabinet than kind of the same sound coming out of this bigger, heavier thing." You know, like what's the point of making a smaller cabinet unless it's like you know, it has an effect, you know, and so, so they, they called up their, their manufacturer and then got porting information about, you know, what size the port should be. And, and so the GS 112 came out, you know, and it did well. So, so I was lucky to be part of that. Um, as far as effects go, um, I've, I've been all over the map with effects. Um, but early on, one thing that was always really important to me was um, being able to control the mix of effects. Right, a blend, yeah. And so, because um, if you're if you're in a, a room that's echoey and boomy, you know, um, like even an octaver, sometimes the mix of an octaver is too heavy, too deep, you know. So you want to be able to trim that back a little bit. And if you've got a preset, you're stuck. Yeah, you know. So um, I remember uh, taking like. Um, the mix knob, the mix potentiometer out of a, a little half rack or quarter rack Alesis reverb and putting it on a, a knob that I could control with my foot, you know. So you are could, a crafty son of a gun. <laughs> so, so, I could, <laughs> so I could, you know, like mix how much reverb I wanted, you know, yeah. in, in live situations. The same thing is like really valuable with Octaver. You can like within a somebody solo, you can start out with like a super deep 100% octave, just like way down murky and sinister. And then as it builds an activity, you can gradually mix in your live, your direct finger sound and things get more intense and active and fills up more, you know? So, so that part of, um, of any effect that I've ever tried to use has, has got to be a big part of it. So, um, <clears throat> I went through this, um, I think the, the most extreme I went was with um, the the Roland GR55 and the, the GK system. 
Okay. Which is has like two PCM synthesizers, uh, a modeling section, and the dry signal that you can mix and match, and you know, you sound like a trumpet. <laughs> you can sound like a classical guitar. You got synths. You got Rhodes. You got acoustic bass, killing acoustic bass. Um. So um, so I you know went that way. You know um. So, but the thing is, the thing about effects is that, and it it, it kind of humors me is that when I see uh, like these effects pedals people put together on Instagram and they have all these effects and like, but you hear their music, it's like when, uh. you know, like when are you ever going to need you know all that shit you know? So what's important to me is like that you write music that demands this functionality, you know? Right. Like if, if I didn't, if I didn't solo, my bass would be four strings, B, E, A, D. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm that practical when it comes to whether the effects belong or not. So in, in recent years, I haven't been in bands that demand, you know, like when I was looping, I could play it, I could lay down a groove and then loop that. And then my, I had my hands free. You know, at that point, I could become, you know, Hendrix or I could become uh, orchestra. I could, you know, program whatever, choose whatever sound I wanted and layer that in and then mix it by hand because everything was like playing by itself, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. so that was fun. Um, but in, in recent years, um, the music I've been playing, you know, live, not that much, um, hasn't demanded all those sounds. So... <laughs> Um, Octaver, touch wah, reverb, you know, some ring modulation, if I can get it, you know, those are, those are pretty useful. But again, it's like really important to be able to mix those. And so like I developed this, you know, kind of a um, horizontal expression pedal. Okay. So uh, expression pedal just um, is a potentiometer on a foot control. Um, and the traditional one is like a volume pedal and mm -hmm. you open and close filters or whatever mix or whatever. Um, but it's a potentiometer. So if you put that potentiometer in a box and on a knob with a big knob that you can see with, you know, then you can turn it in real fine degrees with your ankle huh. instead of using the weight of your foot leg, you know, to, to precisely control an angle of a mix, you know, it's like hard to do in real time. Yeah. So the horizontal expression is like, it's the, it's the way to go for me. So. That is awesome. Another little invention. <laughs> Very cool. Is there anything that you haven't done yet musically that you would like to? Um, no, I've been really lucky. Um, when I was with Tribal Tech, um, I was like a co-leader and like half the music, you know, when we would go in and record was mine, you know, so um great musicians to play with um we did like 10 records over the span of 30 years um toured all over the world um um the thing is i, I don't really like okay this this is a really long way to answer your question but um, <laughs> all right what it, what it is is like in order to survive i'm, I'm like pretty self-critical um, but in in order to survive a moment on stage where you're like exposing yourself and and jamming and creating on the spot, you know, 
Um, there's so many things that you can misinterpret. One is how you felt when you're making it, you know, um, if it felt great, you could go back and listen to the tape and it sucked, you know, it can feel great. Um, and the audience can just sit on their hands and you feel like you're failing, you know, right. Um, other times you feel like shit and you listen back to the tape. Oh, the tape was great. Oh, cool. Okay. Other times you feel like shit. Listen back to the tape. It was shit. And the audience was shit, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> like there's so many things that can go wrong and you can't really trust any of them, you know? So what I learned to do was this kind of like disconnect. Um, you have to care like hell up until the downbeat. And once the downbeat happens, you have to not care what happens. You know, you have to, you can't have any personal stake in the outcome. You know, you just have to let shit happen. And so, um, and what I discovered, um, and what I learned to do apparently, um, <laughs> is that when things went right, you know, when I played a certain way or a certain thing happened musically, um, I didn't try to possess that. I didn't try to say it was mine. I didn't, I didn't try to make that happen on the next gig, you know? And right. so, because I, I play improvisation, I want things to be new and fresh and I don't want people to hear me play the same shit all the time. So if you try to possess and own that and say it's yours and that it affects how you play the next time, if you approach it that way. And so, um, you'll, you'll start making compromises. You'll start playing the thing that worked last time, you know, to get the same reaction from the band and the audience. And you'll become like a character caricature of yourself instead of, you know, creating on the spot. So, so that disconnect, um, what helped me survive, you know, help me and help me be creative in the moment, you know. Um, but also, um, it means that um, I don't have like this overwhelming desire to have that connection with the audience. You know, I didn't become addicted to the audience's reaction. You know, so when I don't do gigs, it's like, yeah, and what what's the problem, you know? <laughs> <laughs> You know, so, so, um, I'm, I'm fine with, with that, you know, with how things are, you know? Right. So long, long answer, but you know, right. That's understandable. I get yeah. that. I like your honesty. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate so. that. Um, what, uh, advice would you give young players? Wow. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, younger players have um, access to so much information. Um, and so they're becoming much more proficient at a much younger age. Um, and so, um, but unfortunately, the, the metric for their success uh, sometimes is, is social media, you know, and likes and shit like that. And, um, and so I didn't, you know, when in my, in my day, <laughs> you know, there was the only thing, only approval you got was maybe, you know, if the gig went well or if something went well, then, you know, everybody was in a good mood and yeah, you agreed that that was a cool gig or whatever, but there wasn't, you know, these hundreds or thousands of likes that, you know, that immediately tells you if something was popular. And so what it's done is it, it's put a lot more a lot more 
emphasis on the messenger instead of the message, which is like really dangerous. You know, so younger musicians are finding out their 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 behavior while they play is being reinforced as far as like how much they appear to be into what they're doing as opposed to what they're actually doing. You know, so 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 a lot of players are getting like the wrong message as far as being told how important it is being you know reinforced how important it is to look like they're into it and like it really means something and when they're actually not playing that much you know so so um i, I don't know um there's going to be there are some amazingly talented musicians out there that are doing amazing things um some of them um are world famous some of them are you know haven't got the social media thing figured out you know so yeah. so um so what I'm encouraging all my students to do is like to, yeah, you've got your, like everybody's got their own path to, to learning the instrument. You got to be able to express yourself on the instrument, but all these other elements now, um, affect your identity, you know, as far as like what you look like when you play, what your music looks like when you play, um, whether it actually looks like you're doing a gig or you're sitting in your bathroom bedroom, you know, like, um, so uh, you, uh, musicians today have to consider a lot more in, right. in, and the other thing that's, that's kind of unfortunate, but as I developed as a musician, um, I wasn't exposed to the world, you know, I could suck, you know, in a small little universe, you know, wherever that gig was or that like, locale or that tri tri county area you know <laughs> the 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 movers and shakers in LA and New York had no idea how bad i was you know <laughs> thank god you know whereas <laughs> whereas musicians today like they've got to start documenting how they play now even that's even though that's not how they want to sound right you know which is unfortunate yeah i i think personally on the other hand um it's an opportunity to create as you, you know, everybody develops and everybody um, evolves, hopefully. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it is an opportunity to create what you would like to be or what you are. Hopefully, you're mm -hmm. staying true to what you are. I know that it changes throughout time. Yeah. It's, Not it's, only as a player, but as a person. Mm -hmm. But it yeah. is an opportunity to build that yourself as opposed to having someone package you. So right. I think that that part is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, there's, it's a really dangerous theme, uh, a dangerous thing, um, acceptance. Um, it's, it's kind of like a drug, you know, like if, if, um, if you become addicted to that acceptance, then, like I said before, you're starting to start making choices that, okay, this video is more popular, so I'm going to do this kind right. of video, you know, it's like, right, right. Damn, damn it, damn it, no. <laughs> I say just play, but yeah, um, I mean, you know, I remember consciously, you know, I remember like, I don't know, I, I was very headstrong antagonistic, you know, I was in this band, um, um, and you know, great musicians. Um, and I had a bass solo one night and I played this thing where I played, you know, it just happened where I played, like I happened to phrase well, you know, and I left space and I copied that phrase and then da, 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 and the audience went nuts. 
you know, and I had a choice. Um, everybody congratulate me, whatever. Uh, I had a choice, like the next, you know, the next chance I had to solo. Okay, will I do that again, or do I try something riskier? You know, so I went for the risky thing. I didn't stick with the, you know, like I said, I was antagonistic. Also, there wasn't that much at stake. It wasn't like I was going to get fired. You right, know? right, right. So, um, but you, you know. Had the the option was, to be able was, to do that. I was going for the creative option instead yeah. of uh, this, you know, ob the obvious road to success, you know. I get that, man. Uh, just a couple more things. Do you, um, I, mean, I mean, I know you've played with some amazing musicians. Who was the most uh, inspiring to work with or, or learn from? Um, I think um, I've been in, I've been indulged by some really great players, you know, um, the the drummer on my last two records, um, Gergo Borlai, is like the most amazing musician you know I've ever met. Awesome, you know, um, just incredible. And he, you know, he still puts up with me. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you still have a desire to create new music. Um, I do, but I'm I'm not really sure of the format, you know, because um, like yeah, here's the thing: it's like you kind of have to you kind of have to know these things in advance about what the music's going to look like. When I was coming up, you know, music didn't look like anything. It was just something you invested your senses into hearing. You might could look at a record cover and read it, you know? Yeah. But now music has to look like something, you know, because if it's not on YouTube, it didn't happen, <laughs> you know? So, so I'm still kind of in my mind figuring out like, what's the format? What's the, you know, what's the connection here to the audience, you know? So, yeah. well, I look forward to yeah. checking out whatever you do. So I, yeah, I it's, think... it's, it's not like I've closed the door. It's just like, I'm yeah. still figuring it out, you know? Got you, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks, thanks. Well, thank you so much, Gary. For Thank you. enlightening us right. with uh, all of your experience and it's advice. Been a blast. Yeah, um, appreciate it. We appreciate you jumping on here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening into the Bass Freaks podcast. Stay healthy, spread love, spread joy, kindness, good vibes, and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path, whatever it may be, and just play. Until next time, cheers. And a huge thank you to Dunlop for making the show possible. Make sure you check out Bass Freaks wherever you get your podcasts.